I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. You like words. I know that you like words because I have not met anybody who doesn't like words. So trust me, you do. And this is where this is going to lead. Every day I like to have fun with words. And so today I went to six different online thesauruses. And in each one of these, I typed in the word thesaurus. And of the six that I tried, only two of them answered me back with the original sense of the word, which is a storehouse, a repository. You could say a stash, a cache maybe. Basically, a thesaurus is a treasury. And the very modern word treasure is rooted, in fact, in the Greek word thesaros, which is physically a chest. I suppose you can put most anything in a chest, stuff of great value, of lesser value, but things get really exciting when the chest contains actual treasure. That's basically the word hunt I went on this morning. Well, now let me talk about Forrest Fenn. Forrest Fenn was an eccentric man, an art collector, and an erstwhile mediocre poet. You may have heard the story about the poem that he circulated, which, while lacking in any real literary merit, I'm going to say that it's not the kind of art I would ever treasure or cherish like a sparkling gem or diamond. Still, this poem was a riddle a tease, and an invitation to a treasure hunt. And for a decade, innumerable people sought after the answer to his riddle, his poem. Some have reported that as many as 350,000 people became treasure hunters over this decade. And the answer to the riddle was this chest that Forrest Fenn had hidden in the Rocky Mountains somewhere, brimful with actual gold, jewels, and rare gems. Well, here with us to tell this bizarre story is a reporter who himself got a little caught up in the adventure, in part because, you know, treasure, but also because he knew that a great story is worth following, as all journalists do. And what do journalists do? They follow, they hunt after the good stories, they go where they lead, and sometimes they pan out in gold. We are going to learn about the man who hid this treasure, the man who found this treasure, and Practically everybody in between. Daniel Barbarisi is with us. He is currently a senior editor at The Athletic. Previously, he worked as a reporter for The Wall Street Journal and The Providence Journal. He joins with us now to discuss his second book, which is titled Chasing the Thrill, Obsession, Death, and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt. Daniel Barbarisi, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Marcus, and thank you for teaching me something new about the uh, origins of the word treasure. I actually didn't know that. It's kind of cool, isn't it? I, I like that stuff. Well, <laughs> you know, um, the story of this treasure hunt has been covered intermittently for years, actually. But I'm wondering if the gold of this story for you wasn't mostly biography. I mean, you got to know some really cool and crazy people, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the whole phenomenon itself is just so fascinating and you know the way in the hook is the treasure obviously but to me the story is the people and what treasure makes people do and why people seek something like this why they quest for it what it inspires in all of us um, you know why a guy hit a treasure chest you know what him in specific biography but but really you know everybody um and and, and the community that built out of this you know the the interactions that were caused because of it uh, just just what you know, this inanimate object, this treasure chest does to we very animate objects and, you know, what it makes people do. And, and so I dove down that rabbit hole, you know, as you kind of said, and, and tried to become a part of this thing in an effort to understand that and be able to tell the story of it. So what percentage of your heart was going after treasure, actual treasure, and, and what percentage was just the reporter going after a story? <laughs> I'd say most of the time it was, you know, 75, 25 skewed in favor of a reporter. But when you get out there and, you know, you're you're out in the wilderness and you've been out, you know, hiking for days kind of thing and you're nearing your spot and you think you're zeroing in on it and you're with your buddy who's your partner in this and he is so excited and you get excited and you start to believe, you know, at, at those moments it becomes a little like 99 to 1. So I, I think, you know, most of the time I was I was pretty good at at keeping up the reportorial uh, detachment. But there are a few times uh, and they're, you know, mostly related in the book when, um, you know, that just goes out the window and you start to believe and it's impossible not to for a little while. And you're just a treasure hunter. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting myself now in your shoes and I'm just wondering uh, how persistent were you? Were you 
in this to the degree that you were a little crazed from time to time. I mean, I, and I guess the way to assess this is to measure the time and uh, involved in travel and how many how many miles of hiking did you did you get sucked into? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in terms of persistence, I wouldn't say I was great. Uh, in terms of um, involvement, I was pretty good. You know, in the sense of I wasn't trying hundreds of solves and going out. You know weeks on weeks at a time at a year as many of uh, the more dedicated hunters do but you know over essentially three years of active searching in this um you know i think i probably i mean in terms of miles travel I, i'm coming out of boston so anytime i went to the southwest i had to make it worth it my time um because you know you're not just gonna pop over for a day or two so most of these trips were a week plus uh, most of them were combination reporting trips where i would interview people uh or spend time with forrest fenn himself uh, and also then get out into the wilderness and do some searching, you know, often with my my search partner, Jay Rayner, uh, known as Beep in the book and in uh, and in the fantasy sports community where he's a well-known guy. Um, and so, uh, you know, most of those, you know, several days, certainly on those trips out on the hunt every time, um, probably six or seven of those trips in total. You know, the, these were these were not insignificant commitments, both of time, cost, money, you know, all these things. Uh, you know, these were. This takes a lot of doing to become a treasure hunter, even if you're kind of a, a you know, halfway one like I was. Um, but to even get out there is tough. It takes it takes a lot of investment. And that's one thing I think that people don't realize about the people who do this. You know, if you're coming from Florida or Virginia or something like that and you believe in your solution and you're going out there and you've spent you know probably several thousand dollars to do so to get out there for a week's time with the travel and everything. You know, it can be very tough to return empty handed uh, time after time. And I think that really, you know, that wore a lot of people. There was a lot of emotional financial uh cost to this and and people had to kind of reconcile those things and i think that's that degree to, to me to some degree leads to a lot of the seriousness which with people take it you know it's not just something you can go for people who don't live in the search area not something you can just do it as a weekend lark which for some it is but for a lot of people it's not and so they had to really take it with a level of seriousness that i think surprised a lot of other people outside of it I think there are endless tragic tales here that are analogous to somebody buying a lot of lottery tickets and not winning. You know, the, the, the people who, who sit on these tickets and they, they hang on and they kind of hope and, and, and their hearts are in it. I would say that, you know, I, I think that one point in the book I said this, that, you know, there are easier ways to get rich than going searching for a treasure chest, including buying a lottery ticket, because this was, you know, needle in a haystack just undersells it. I mean... The number of people who were searching this, I mean, you used the 350,000 number. That's one that Fenn put out there. I don't believe it's that big, but it, it's certainly tens upon tens of thousands, you know, who went searching for this and probably well more than that. Uh, and, you know, most of them <laughs> did not find it. Um, you know, there's not there's not a weekly treasure hunt winner in this. Uh, there was only one winner and everybody else goes home with nothing. Uh, and so... Yes, there was a lot of, I think, again, emotional and financial cost to this, and a lot of people who got themselves in, in you know, trouble of various sorts doing this because the pull of that chest is very strong, and it is hard to say no to it at times. And I, you know, I certainly felt that, um, and I think I dealt with a whole lot of people who felt that and who had trouble letting go even after it was to the point where you couldn't even chase it anymore. How many people even knew what was in that chest as they were hunting for it? I mean, if you're going to go after a treasure chest, somebody can just put out that word, those words, treasure chest and, and gold, and, and, and that might be enough to, to bait a few people. But I'm wondering, was there an inventory that was published? Did people know what they were seeking for? So Fenn, Fenn wrote, uh, you know, Forrest Fenn, the guy who hit it, he wrote in his book a pretty good synopsis of what was in there. Um, you know, the, the contents changed over time because... He initially came up with this plan in 1988 when he was diagnosed with uh, what was believed to be a fatal form of cancer. Um, he beat the cancer, but he stuck with the idea that came to him during that time to take some of his wealth with him when he left and essentially leave it next to his body when he um, put the chest next to him out in the wilderness somewhere at his special spot. So um, over the next essentially 22 years, he curated the chest. He took things out. He put things in. He changed a lot of it. So there's been different pictures of it at various points. Um, and so there was no hundred percent certainty about what was in it ultimately, but people had a pretty good idea. And, and, and in the end, it was pretty close to what it was believed to be was in the chest. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, not everyone knew exactly what was in. I think that was a little bit of the allure that you had a general idea, but you weren't a hundred percent sure what treasure you're actually seeking out there. Uh, but people had some idea for sure. Why do you think he was curating this as the years went by? Why tinker with it? 
I think he wanted it to be meaningful. Um, you know, the tre- the entire treasure hunt was meaningful to him. It was, the, you know, his memoir, which is really the book where the treasure hunt riddle is hidden, is all about him, of course, as memoirs are, obviously. Um, and in so many ways, the treasure hunt was as well. Uh, the, to learn about where his treasure was, you had to understand the man. You had to understand why this spot where he hoped to hide his treasure was so important to him. It was a spot where he, at one stage, had expected to sit down and die. So why would that spot matter? So you have to kind of figure that stuff out. You have to go deep into his psyche and understand his history to really have a great understanding of that. And so even many of the objects that were placed in the chest are ones that had significance to him. And it wasn't about necessarily their intrinsic value, uh, although that was an element in some cases, certainly. Um, but a lot of it was also things that he, you know, I think thought represented his career in art and his, to some degree, his life and things along those lines. So, you know, he wanted the chest to be not just a pile of goods, not just, you know, a whole stash of lucre. That, it was, that's good, but that wasn't enough. Um, he wanted things in there that also represented things to him or, or that were meaningful to him in some ways. Just because of the story that swirls around this chest of treasure, whatever the uh, uh, approximate value might be of this thing, just in terms of market value, if you sold them off item by item, just imagine this going to auction at Christie's or Sotheby's or something like that with a story that would there would be a multiplying factor there for this. Uh, can, can we even put a dollar figure on this? Uh, well, I mean, yes, there are ways to do that. And, and the first part of that, as you mentioned, I think is, is a pretty good place to start. Uh, there have been some pretty good analyses of what the items in it would sell for. And I think it's pretty fair to put it around a million dollars in terms of you know, the, the high end, low end value, you kind of even it out in the middle there of the items that we knew to be in the chest. I, I think a million dollars is pretty fair. But as you're hinting at, something is worth what people will pay for it. And in this case, people might pay quite a bit for what is ultimately the Fen treasure, which was this thing that took on more value and more importance than just the items in that box. This, you know, tugged at people's imaginations for 10 years and at their desires and hearts and all that. So I could certainly see it going for more than that uh, in that kind of situation. And we may we may see that kind of situation at some point soon. So, um, you know, we'll see, I guess. Now, you said that people, in order to understand where the treasure might be, they had to understand Forrest Fenn and, and get in deep into his psyche and understand why this place might have been su- of such importance to him, that he had a memoir. So there was more than just the poem to go on? Yeah, I think, you know, the book itself, his original book, The Thrill of the Chase, and two subsequent books that he published, it wasn't that there were hints in them per se, although to some degree there were, um, but you also gain context about the man and trying to understand what makes him tick. And I think, you know, the, the book and the poem work in tandem to allow the searcher to understand Fenn and then hence to understand the journey they must take to get to his spot. So his book is The Thrill of the Chase, and, and you twist that around for your title. Uh, yes, I mean, yeah, yes, ex- uh, yes, is the short period. There's really not much I can say more to that. Yeah, yes. it's Chasing the Thrill. <laughs> chasing the Thrill is your book. As you were chasing yeah. the thrill. and, yes, and as, as, as everyone else was as well. Uh, yeah, but you were going after who this guy, you actually got to sit down how many times with him? I think six, uh, you know, separate trips. A lot, a, lot of these, a lot of these trips, I would meet him on multiple days. Um, so, you know, I don't know the exact number of days we spent together. Um, but you were face to face with him and you spoke with him and you got to know him. Did you, yeah. did you crack this code? Did you figure out what the psyche of Forrest Fenn was all about? I certainly tried. Um, you know, I think, look, he is not an easy guy to know. He was a very multi-layered individual, a really fascinating guy, uh, somebody who, you know, he didn't have one reason for doing things. He had a lot of them. They were sometimes in competition. They sometimes worked together. Uh, he, you know, I, 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 this sounds like I'm underselling him, but I don't think it is. He was a very interesting person. But did he give you Uh, straight answers? When you asked him a question, did you know that he was leveling with you? Uh, you know, how can you ever know if somebody is leveling with you, frankly? But, you know, he would give answers to things. Um, and I believe that they were part of the full answer to things. Yes. And even in his mind, sometimes they may have been the full answer, but, you know, that doesn't mean that to my mind, they are the full answer. Um, you know, he had sometimes on things he had kind of his stump speech where, you know, he had talked to a lot of reporters by the time I dealt with him. And 
he would give his reasons for things. This is why I did this, or this is why this is. And he'd kind of go into his well-worn uh, patterns on some of these things. And, you know, I would accept those. And I don't think that they were wrong, but I think that there's often a layer deeper than those things. And so I would try to, you know, probe him on a lot of those and really get him to go open up deeper. And sometimes he would want to play and sometimes he wouldn't. And sometimes the answers would be different than they had been the previous time. You know, if we, if I caught him on the right moment or if he decided to trust me more in that period or whatever it was. So, um, you know, I tried those kind of things and you try them and you see where you go. And sometimes you get further and sometimes you don't. So that's, you know, that's part of the process in my mind. Well, I'm just imagining that he must have been pretty, you know, watertight because at the time you're talking with him, the treasure still is not found, right? He was very, very good at not saying things he didn't want to say. Uh, you know, that's a skill. It really is. Um, and he was somebody who was exceptional at it. Uh, and he, he wasn't going to get caught in something. And I wasn't trying to catch him in something, frankly. You know, that wasn't my goal wasn't to get him to reveal something about the location of the chest. That didn't really have anything to do with what I was doing. But I did want him to reveal things about his motivations and who he was and, and understand more about him in that sense. And so, you know, there were times when, again, he would want to play more than less. And there were times when, you know, I, I felt like I was getting more of the real man out of him and his real emotions than, than other times for sure. And that was, you know, that's what I was seeking when I was talking. About yeah, it's, it's those real emotions that interest me because when I meet somebody that's uh, doing this kind of a thing, I never do actually, but if I were to, <laughs> I would want to know, is he doing this for the people out there? Or is he doing this for Forrest Fenn? Is he self-centered? Is he obsessed with his own story? Is he kind of crazed? Is he, has he got delusions about who he is and how important he is? Is he frankly narcissistic? Uh, and, and where are the rewards? Is he toying with people's heads? That's what I want to know. So I, I think that about 80% of the things you said are right on there. Uh, I don't want to break them down individually one by one, but most of those I think are right. Um, you know, in terms of, I don't think he was crazy at all. Um, and I don't know if he was narcissistic, but I certainly think, you know, he, he, he did not have a small ego. That is for sure. Um, I don't think, you know, I think at times he was toying with people. I don't think that was his primary motivation in this, but I think as things went along in the chest, in the, in the search, he certainly didn't shy away from doing that in terms of, the individual answers he gave people. But so to the core of that question, I think that this was both about other people and it was about him. Uh, I think it has to be both. Um, I do believe, you know, I think in some degree when he first did this, he thought of it as something of a lark, thought of it as kind of this crazy thing he did. Um, and he liked, he delighted in the fact that he could do something like that, that it was, was just so, you know, off the wall and who else is going to do this? And I just did that. And, you know, Forrest, you, you crazy uh, son of a gun kind of thing. Uh, speaking to himself there. Um, and once it developed into something larger and so many people got into it, which I don't think he ever expected. I don't think he ever saw it getting it nearly as big as it did. Um, you know, look, he, he spoke very you know, often about how he was trying to get people out of their houses, get kids off their phones, get families back into the wilderness, <laughs> you know, how he wanted to, he did it after the financial crisis in, you know, 2008, 2009. And he wanted, you know, his line about it was he wanted, uh, you know, the redneck in Texas with a bedroll in his truck to go out searching for his treasure. He wanted to give that guy hope. I think all of those things are true. I don't have any reason to doubt that he did want to do those things as part of why he did this. He wanted to get kids off the couch. He wanted to give people hope. He wanted to, you know, inspire. I think all that's true. I also think that this is, you know, it's absolutely about him. And he wrote this memoir that is his life story. And then he created this treasure hunt where to solve the treasure hunt, you have to know the man. I, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, self-centeredness, whether we're, we're assigning positive or negative value to that, that is a self-centered experience. It is centered on the self. Um, this self, in this case, being Farst Fenn. Uh, and you cannot really solve this thing or get deep into it without knowing this guy. And, you know, he managed to mythologize his own past in a way that is kind of incredible, actually. You know, I mean, there's a part in the book where I talk about this, but you know, the events of our lives are not meaningful to other people, you know, like nobody gives a darn about my very, very important experiences with my high school girlfriend, you know, that doesn't mean anything to the rest of the world. But Forrest Fenn's experiences in that vein do, uh, because he made them matter, he created the treasure hunt essentially around them. And to understand his treasure hunt, you have to go back through his old stories of frolicking around, you know, the Firehole River as a 15 year old out in Yellowstone and, and his adventures and hijinks with his brothers and, and, and brother and, and friends and, you know, the things he did 
50, 70 years ago suddenly matter anew. And that's kind of an incredible achievement, whether you want to assign a positive or a negative value to it. It's kind of a crazy thing that it happened and that he managed to make so many people care about the essentially mundane details of his life from long ago. But that's what you're forced to do if you're going to get into this thing. So, you know, that's one element of it. The inspirational, good, positive, do things for the world element is something of it. And, you know, I also think that it was something where he wanted to leave a mark on the world, to have something where he did something that was going to exist after he was gone. You know, he did this at 80 years old. He didn't expect to live to 80 years old. He thought he was going to be gone from this world around 60, frankly. And, you know, when he did this at 80, he had no idea how much longer he'd be around. And he, I think, so there's there's a, you know, there's, there's a well-known thing about him that, you know, he, his father, Marvin, was a well-known school principal who was, seemed to be a very good man, a very you know, strong man who did a lot of good for a lot of kids and was very well liked. And Fenn didn't like that when you looked up Marvin Fenn, you know, on the computer or other places, basically he didn't exist. He had no legacy. He had no history, he had no past. Even though he had done so much good for so many people, um, he was gone to the world, uh, you know, with the exception of through his son in some ways. And uh, Forrest Fenn didn't really like that idea. And I certainly think that even though he was not going to be forgotten, um, you know, he had been become by that point the kind of an art dealer to the stars, a really well-known man in Santa Fe and in that scene and in the art scene. And he, he knew very many important and famous people, et cetera, et cetera. Had he left a mark? Had he left something that was going to outlive him in that way? And I don't think he thought that. And, you know, I think he believed that in his treasure hunt, he had done something along those lines, you know, that people would be chasing this thing that he had established potentially for years upon years upon years um, that he had, there was something of him or something he had done in the world after he was, you know, gone in the ground. And I think that did appeal to him on some levels. Absolutely. In this chest, 265 gold coins, dozens of gold nuggets, a golden dragon bracelet with ruby eyes, two gold frogs, an emerald and gold Spanish ring, gold mirrors, we're going to find out about the significance of those two gold frogs. If anybody can tell us about that, Daniel Barbarisi can. We're going to actually take a break here and come right back to the story of Forrest Fenn and his treasure. And of course, we're going to get to the story of the fellow who found it. Who was the finder? And uh, what's his story? Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. It's a great pleasure to have Daniel Barbarisi with us. He is a reporter who has a new book out titled Chasing the Thrill, Obsession, Death, and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt. This is about the Forest Fen treasure. And Daniel, uh, I, I want to talk about those two gold frogs. I was just pretending you would know why they were significant. But, uh, but first of all, that word death in the subtitle, there were people who died going after this. Yeah, I mean, there were uh, at least five people who we are certain died uh, as a direct result of this. And you know, that's not an insignificant number. That's not a fluke. Um, you know, that is that is a result of the fact that people are going to put themselves in danger uh, and in dangerous situations chasing this thing that they, you know, were so devoted to finding. Uh, and, you know, Fenn was fond of saying that, you know, people die in the Grand Canyon every year. You know, he had a line about, you know, if, if people, if somebody drowns, we don't drain all the swimming pools. We teach people to swim. And look, there's truth to those things as well. Um, there's also truth to the idea that people are going to put themselves in harm's way, seeking something that's effectively an attractive nuisance. Um, and, you know, those are, are things that are tough to reconcile. Uh, it's Fens Hunt put people out into the wilderness. That's probably good. It also put them out in the wilderness in a way where they believed that whatever they were seeking was right over the next hill every time. And so they were willing to go past the levels that, you know, just a regular hiker would go in pursuit of something. Because, you know, as we were discussing before, there's that sunk cost issue of I made it out here. I spent all this money to be here. I believe I'm in the right place. I can't go home empty handed. I've got to go do this. And so that's tough. You know, when you get that, that mentality, and I've had it doing this, seeking this thing. You know, it's hard to just kind of toss it away. And so people put themselves, you know, in situations where they might have done some things that, you know, at times were not the wisest things to do, you know, out at the wrong time of year, out in rivers, big rivers, very big rivers. Um, you know, some of them were just 
accidents that what are you going to do? But in the same sense, you know, these people were were putting themselves in situations where they might not have been in the best spot because they sought the treasure and because they were willing to take risks as a result of that. And so Fenn had to deal with with real questions. Once people started dying in numbers, and that's kind of when I entered the hunt was the early part of 2017. Um, I, I really got into this around March, April 2017 and started to really dive in. And the early parts of the book are from that period. Um, and that time is when three people died in the space of a month uh, seeking Fenn's treasure. And the New Mexico State Police stepped in and said, this thing needs to be called off. Uh, you know, many calls came from around the country for Fenn to to end the hunt. And he publicly, at least, uh, said that he was, you know, considering whether it should continue to exist, whether he should call this thing off. Um, and, you know, it's a complicated question. Uh, you know, it's it's a tough thing. It's not one with an easy answer. Uh, you know, this thing brought good into the world. It also caused problems. I, I think both of those things are indisputable. And so, you know, Fenn had to reckon with that and, and deal with the fact that he cared about these people who were dying. He didn't want people to die because of his treasure hunt, quite obviously, but he also believed that his treasure hunt was a good thing. And so, you know, he had to kind of deal with those conflicting issues. Um, and I think, you know, people who thought about the hunt that were involved in the hunt did too, um, you know, and so it's, it's, a, it's a tough question. It really is. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I ultimately believe that the hunt, you know, was a overall good thing that it should continue that. Um, you know, it's a tough, but it's not like it was easy. You know, it's a gray area in so many ways. So, um, yeah, there was real death. And certainly I tried to, you know, find out as much as I could about those people and treat them as individuals, um, not just as, you know, names and numbers, but, um, it is, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate part of this story that, that these things happened. And it's, you know, a very important part of this story. Yeah. I guess a contrived uh, goal to, 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 I mean, people try to swim the English channel, right? And, and, and that's Correct. dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, let's uh, let's talk just a little bit about the the dragon, the the two golden frogs. Is this just kind of random stuff? Well, no. I mean, these aren't random objects. You know, the dragon bracelet, for instance, had a connection to his his great friend Eric Sloan, who was an artist, um, a Taos artist, uh, and you know, he had he had. The objects in the chest usually had a connection to Fen. You know, um, there was uh, one one item in particular was a bracelet that he had won uh, in a pool game. Um, and it was an item of great historical significance and it mattered to him, you know, and most of the case, most of the items in the case in the chest had some level of significance, not all of them, you know, or if they did, I don't know the provenance of some of them, but um, you know, generally speaking, he tried to put in things that mattered to him um, or that things were representative of different points in his artistic career, you know, or some of the coins in it were really from, from different eras, interesting times, you know, it wasn't just, just rocks and gold and gold dust and stuff like that. You know, there's these, you know, uh, these mirrors, these golden mirrors where you could see yourself, you know, there's nose rings, pre-Columbian items, you know, just very interesting kind of cross section of, of goods in there. Um, you know, a lot of which had come into his possession through his art career, you know, a lot of other which he just kind of picked up along the way. Uh, just, just, you know, interesting stuff really. And, and things that, you know, some of them, again, like the Golden Dragon Bracelet, which I think was was without question in my mind, at least the most impressive item in the in the collection, um, you know, really were spectacular. And some of which, you know, when you look at them, were not take your breath away, but were still pretty darn cool. So, you know, there's a real, real cross section of items in there. Now, the guy who found it, we're going to talk about him in just a moment. But I want to mention again, this was people searching the Rocky Mountains from, I guess, northern New Mexico all the way up to Yellowstone. This is a huge tract of land. And if he gave any clues that would narrow it down, those clues had to be uh, figured out. And I, I guess a guy named Jack did that. Yeah, I mean, you know, Fenn did give some some hints. And over time, I think he did give some hints that narrowed the search area somewhat because he was trying to protect people as more people died. You know, he tried to make it clear that there are some places you shouldn't go and, you know, elevations that are too high and, and too low. And he, so he did narrow the search area somewhat. Um, and, you know, I, I'd like to think that helped. And he obviously did the right thing in doing that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to say. People still were going to obviously do what they were going to do in the search for this. And a lot of people certainly said, um, well, this rule doesn't apply because of this. Uh, you know, people would find ways to to explain away why they didn't have to follow this or that rule uh, fairly often. But the rules were real, and and they actually did, I think, uh, narrow the search area significantly. But um, you know, yes, ultimately, after after ten years, 
of this chest being out there. Uh, in, in June of 2020, uh, Forrest Fenn announced that it had been found. And that set off, you know, it was a firestorm. Absolutely. It was, um, it was a crazy moment uh, when finally after 10 years, this thing was no longer out there. And, and, you know, he said that it had been essentially picked up right where he had left it 10 years before. And uh, he didn't identify who the finder was. And he didn't identify where it was found. Um, and he said more information would be forthcoming at some point. But uh, and so for a couple days, this is uh, June of 2020. For a couple days, people said, you know, oh, that's great. I'm so happy it was found. Oh, I'm so sad I wasn't the one who found it. And then after, you know, 24 to 48 hours of that, a very different tone developed. And um, people suddenly were very unhappy and said, wait, is that all we're getting? You know, we played this game for 10 years and we're not going to get any pictures of it. We're not going to find out where it was. We're not going to find out where it was hidden. You know, wh who found it, anything about it. You're just going to tell us it was found and it's over, you know, and so... People didn't believe it. They got very angry very quickly and said, uh, you know, this is all, you know, not on the level or this is garbage and you need to fix this and we need to know more. And so after, pardon me, a few days, uh, Fen came back out and said, you know, I, I will have more information for people soon. And uh, I believe about 10 to 12 days after the initial find was announced, he put out a few pictures and those pictures were of him uh, in a lawyer's office at an indeterminate location at that time. Um, with the chest, looking through the items and trying on, you know, for instance, that bracelet I just mentioned, uh, and getting to actually go through it and, and seeing finally the chest for the first time since it had been seen in the pictures in the book. Uh, and so that did provide an element of proof, but it also didn't satisfy a lot of people who wanted a lot more than that. And, you know, they wanted to know things like well, where, where had this been and who found it and all that. And so um, there was a lot of anger uh, at this, you know, for, for a lot of time after. And in July, he gave a little bit more, which was the state where it was located, which was Wyoming. And that was enough for some people, but frankly, not for most people in it. And so those people said, you know, I need more. I need more. I need more. And um, nothing more was forthcoming from Forrest Fenn ever, uh, because on, in early September of 2020, he passed away. And, you know, it, it seemed for a while that that might be, the end of this story to some extent that we might never find out more about where it came from or where it went or, or who got involved in this or anything more about it. That, that might've been the end of it. So, um, you know, that was, I think a tricky moment for a lot of people. Now, how close were you ever to that chest in physical distance? I don't know because I don't know where the chest ultimately was. Um, but I'm pretty sure I was nowhere close. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so you haven't laid eyes on it. The finder has not uh, invited you over to look it over. Well, that's not entirely true. Ah. Um, so I have done both those things, actually. Um, so, all right. I didn't know how far. Well, I, it depends how far you want to get into the ending of the book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I just need uh, somebody to say to me on the air right now that this was real. It was legit. And, and as an eyewitness, you can say, yeah, there was a treasure and there was a finder. Uh, yeah, I can say all those things. And so the finder wanted to remain anonymous. And for a long time, he kept that under wraps. And eventually it, it landed in the courts because somebody tries to sue him. And so he says, well, I'm going to be outed anyway here. So he, he, he decides that he's going to be identified and, and you get to help do that. Yeah. So, um, you know, not long after Fenn had passed away, uh, an article post was posted on the website Medium, and uh, you know, which is a self-publishing platform where you can remain anonymous. And it was by someone who identified himself as the finder of Fen's treasure, and he spoke about finding the treasure in some detail. And you know, it immediately it was it was this thing, and it was kind of out of nowhere. And it really, I thought, had incredible detail about it. Um, and a lot of people immediately dismissed it, didn't believe it, said all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know. This isn't real. This is Fenn writing from beyond the grave. He had, had, you know, said this should publish after his death. Somebody else wrote this. Doug Preston, the author, wrote this. His grandson <laughs> Shiloh wrote this. Just all kinds of stuff. But honestly, like right away, I thought, oh, no, this is the guy. This this all rings true to me. This was somebody who really searched for this thing. This was somebody who 
you know, really felt the things that I remember feeling. And this is somebody who clearly met Forrest Fenn because a lot of the things that he related Fenn saying were things that were very familiar to me. Well, what were, um, what were the you know, powers the, of deduction that the finder used? In what sense? I'm not sure I understand. Uh, yeah, he had to analyze all the clues. And, and in order to find this at the Rocky Mountains somewhere, he had to zero in. He figured it out. And how did he, how did he deduce that? You know, and so, yeah. So what, what did he do that was different than what other people did? Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, he, he understood very quickly that it wasn't about anagrams or, you know, things in the book pointing to stuff in the margins or something. He understood that it was about a very close reading of the text itself and of the poem itself and of understanding Fenn himself and getting that this is the journey that Fenn is taking to the spot where he wants to die. And he understood that then he had to figure out okay, what is the important place that mattered to Fenn? Where is the place he wanted to die? And what is the journey that takes him to get there? And that may seem straightforward in retrospect, but it's not. Everyone was trying 100 million different things to get to this. And, you know, he identified a few very minor, quote unquote, slip ups that Fenn had made in interviews, uh, you know, in media interviews. And um, those things helped to guide him. And he just stayed on that path of understanding Fenn and understanding the place he wanted to die and understanding the journey it took him to get there. And having focused on that in that way, he was eventually correct. You know, he didn't know that for years, literally, but he focused on a site. It added up to him and he spent years combing that site and going over it back and forth, back and forth and trying to find the actual spot because he did believe he had a general location, but he didn't have a, you know, spot down to the, you know, absolute foot or anything like that. So, um, he spent a long period of time then going and seeking that and searching for it. Um, and, you know, eventually he was he was finally proven right. Were you, um, were you able so, to find out, was there disturbed soil? Was it under a, a pile of rocks? Was it inside a hollow tree? Do we know that kind of detail? Uh, it was, you know, as he's described it, in kind of a nook on the ground, uh, a, a depression in the ground that was not, not covered, um, you know, initially by anything, but over time, because of the topography of the area, the elements covered it with, you know, dirt and leaves and brush and all that kind of stuff, such that while Fenn did not bury the treasure, over the time it became largely buried, you know, lowercase b, not capital B. Um, but effectively, it was not the kind of thing where if you're walking 15 feet away from it, you're just going to go, oh, look, there's a treasure chest over there. Uh, you would not do that. And, you know, the finder uh, has said that, they told me that he believes, he may have even stepped on it on one of his previous searches um going through wow. that exact spot he definitely went over that spot for sure on a previous search before he actually identified and found the treasure on a whole different search um and that's you know that's how well hidden it was effectively at that point well look daniel i'm the kind of guy that i really like the outdoors so many of us all uh, you i anybody listening we we love uh, wilderness and we don't want to see it in any way despoiled or ruined and I'm just wondering if this spot is going to remain a secret forever, because if it were known, there would be weird pilgrimages to that place and a lot of feet trampling that soil. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the whole issue of what's going on in the hunt right now. So, you know, OK, so even though, um, right, as, as you hinted at, I, you know, I was able to get in touch with the finder. Uh, we began a correspondence. Um, I ended up um, identifying him in an article in Outside Magazine in December of 2020 uh, as Jack Stoof. Um, at the at the time, a 32 year old medical student uh, from Michigan who had been the man who found the treasure. And, um, you know, Jack was OK with his identity being out there. He understood that it was likely going to come out at some point anyway. Um, but, you know, he has at every point uh, adamantly refused to identify the location of the treasure and where it was found. And, you know, his reasoning is that he doesn't want it to become uh, a tourist site. You know, he believes this is a spot that was special to Forrest Fenn. It's a spot that has become special to him as a result of that. Um, and it, you know, it's a spot that, that holds an importance in the history of this hunt. And it might become essentially a pilgrimage site for better or for worse. And you know, he doesn't want that to happen. And so he has gone to great pains to conceal the location in order to, to not reveal the location of where uh, the chest was found. And so you know, that has, that has not sat well with very, very, very many people in the search community who are still trying to figure that out to this day and actively seeking the spot. Um, but, 
uh, you know, Jack has has remained firm that he doesn't want to give it out. And so that is that is, you know, a major point of contention in the community right now. Yeah. What you just said tells me that the obsession, even though the treasure is found, it's not there for the taking anymore. That, that obsession just will not die in some hearts. They've spent too much time. They've invested too much. The story must continue for them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, the, the, in this in my mind, look, the story's not over because, you know, we don't know what's happened to the chest yet. Uh, you know, we don't know where it's going to end up. There are things that remain, but in my mind, it's mostly over, um, you know, but in a lot of the minds of a lot of other people, it's not at all. You know, that there's a lot of, you know, challenging, well, was this whole thing on the level? There's a lot of conspiracy theories that fly around. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes around at this point, frankly. And, um, you know, a lot of people, yeah, don't, they want to say it's not, it's not over. It's not done. This is not right. Da, 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 da. It's, uh, it's, uh, some of it certainly defies um, belief, but you know, and some of the stuff they come up with, I'm saying, not some of the things that are actually about the, the solution itself. I'm saying some of the things that people come up with. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, there's a lot of people who, who don't yeah. want to let go. And even the ones who are willing to let go and who understand rationally, this is not some grand conspiracy are just want to complete the search in their mind, want to figure out where it was. And I can certainly understand that, you know, the desire to say, I sought this for so many years. And a lot of people, you know, five, seven, eight, ten years on this thing, a lot of people who sought this just want to figure out the solution. They know there's no chest there anymore. That's okay. They're not going to be rewarded at the end. There's no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow, but they still want to find where the rainbow ended. And I can understand that. Yeah. You know, there's there's some some very good searchers who spent a lot of time seeking this who are still seeking the the location just to know. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's something about this that is really quite beautiful, I think. And maybe this is hindsight. Maybe this is that 2020 hindsight of, of, that people have. But don't you think Jack was the right guy to find this? In, 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 in what you said about his respect for the location and for the special spot that was in the life of Forrest Fenn, it seems like he's trying to respect and reverence that aspect of of a deceased uh, eccentric art collector. And uh, I kind of like that. I kind of like that Jack would, would keep that quiet. You know, it's funny. Look, it's hard to say, you know, this is the right person out of all the people. I don't know if I can make that value judgment, but I think that Jack takes this very seriously. And I think that there's a lot of value to that. You know, that Jack really does, um, as you said, he, he feels a respect for the spot, for what it meant to Fenn for what it means, you know, to, to searchers in general. Um, and he understands he's in a tough position because of that, you know, he's not giving a lot of people what they want and that's a hard place to put yourself, but, um, you know, it's, he, he has taken on that responsibility and, uh, you know, that's, yeah, look, you have to be very strong to do that. And, and Jack is someone who I think very much cares about what Fenn tried to do and what he tried to bring into the world and what it all means, and about the wilderness around, and about the specialness of this spot. And I think, you know, that is, I think, something to be respected, for sure. Last of all, you, Daniel, will you live out your remaining days on this earth with this story still being something that you dream about? I mean, will you go to sleep some nights, and, <laughs> and in the morning you'll be thinking about gold? I don't know. That's interesting. Um, look, this was this was an incredible thing to be a part of, you know, to get to be part of a real life treasure hunt, um, to get to quest for something in that sense, you know, to, to get to have places out in the wilderness have a value that is even grander than what they already have. You know, Yellowstone is an unbelievable place, but Yellowstone is even more unbelievable when you think it hides a treasure. You know, when when just even the more when everything has greater significance in your own mind, that brings everything to another level. Um, I am incredibly happy that I got to feel that experience and, and experience that feeling. Uh, and that is something that, you know, uh, I feel very fortunate to have, to have been a part of this on every level. And I, you know, and to the extent that I am now in any way involved in this story because of, you know, some of the things we hinted at, at towards the end there, um, you know, I feel very fortunate at that as well. Um, you know, I hope that I was able to do my part in this justice. Um, so uh, look, this is an incredible tale. This was an incredible phenomenon. I definitely feel privileged to have been a part of it in any capacity. Um, I don't know if, if, if gold will sit with me till the end. I, I have no idea about that at this point. Um, but <laughs> to be involved in this treasure hunt is something that, you know, absolutely will be with me for all time without any question about that. And given the fact that you've written about fantasy sport, this kind of up to the ante of fantasy in a sport, didn't it? Because there was a real treasure. <laughs> 
Yes, treasure hunting, the ultimate fantasy sport. <laughs> Absolutely. Daniel Barbarisi, such a pleasure to have a chance to visit with you. Thanks for being with us. Marcus, thank you, and thanks for teaching me about the word treasure. <laughs> Daniel Barbarisi is currently senior editor at The Athletic. He previously worked for The Wall Street Journal and The Providence Journal. I mentioned that he's uh, written about fantasy sport. His first book was titled Dueling with Kings, and we've been talking about his most recent book titled Chasing the Thrill, Obsession, Death, and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt. That is a book, of course, about the hunt for the treasure of Forrest Fenn. One if by land two if by sea. Or if you happen to discover the location of just the right sunken treasure ship, it could be 17 billion by sea. That's how much a sunken Spanish treasure ship found in 2015 was worth, apparently. We're going to talk with one of the men who discovered it coming up next on Constant Wonder. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Treasure hunting is the theme of the hour. A while back, we all learned about a Spanish treasure ship that sunk in 1708, loaded with treasure, now valued at about $17 billion. We reached out to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution to find out how they located this ship. Here's what I learned from Jeff Cayley, a research engineer with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and one of the technicians who helped make this discovery. So our robot is uh, what's called an autonomous underwater vehicle, and this is um, c contrast to other kinds of underwater robots that might operate on a tether, and you have a joystick and a computer screen, you can control it. This is completely free-swimming, streamlined, it's about 12 and a half feet long, weighs almost a ton in air, um, and can go, go for about uh, 24 hours of endurance at about two meters a second, and that will based on pre-programmed coordinates that we give it, we'll kind of what we call mowing the lawn. We'll move along the seafloor as if it was mowing the lawn, back taking images or capturing sonar imagery, trying to look for uh, what we're looking for, which in this case was, uh, was a shipwreck. And it sounds like what you end up with from that lawn mowing is a map of a kind. Absolutely. With topographic features, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows. That is uh, one of the sensors we carry. Uh, certainly looking at the topography is one way that, that can tell you what's down there. Another is to use sonar. So if you imagine like a bat might use sonar or a dolphin uses sound to image. Uh, us humans are much more used to using light to be able to see what's around us, but it doesn't work underwater as well. So we use sound Well, the vehicle will send a ping, and then it listens for how long it takes that ping to return from objects in the seafloor, and, and that allows us um, at, at higher frequencies to actually build um, an acoustic image or an image made of sound to, to, to see what's down there. And that's really the, the first sensor, the, the first data we got back was off of those acoustic images of, hey, that, that, that blur over there looks a little like a ship, let's go take a closer look. So you have something like a map that shows a differentiated surface, all kinds of differences here and there. You Let's talk about the moment of discovery. You looked at the map. I keep calling it a map, but whatever it is. You, you looked at the data, and you said, that looks like an old, old gun. Right. So there is. I was a member of about five or six people from Woods Hole, as well as a, a handful of others from... Columbia and elsewhere uh, as a part of this expedition. It was not me alone in a rowboat. I should get that out front. Um, but <laughs> That's a nice so picture, though. We had, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> but we, were, we were out. We, we Basically, we do what we kind of call a, a two-mission paradigm. We'll send the robot out, and it'll collect kind of long-range, blurrier data, and then based on the areas that are more interesting, we'll send it back for a second mission and take pictures. Um, and those... You know, basically, it's a more expensive camera on the bottom of the robot, and it takes a really high-resolution picture. And that, to a human, gives us that confirmation of, okay, this is what we're looking for. So at the point of what you would call discovery, I was sitting in my bunk, and our team leader, Mike, had given, us, or given me a hard drive of all of the images, the optical, the camera images that came off the robot. So he was like, take these to your bunk go have a look and let me know what you see. 
And up to this point, all we've known is that we were resurveying a more interesting blur in a in a sonar image. So I'm down in my bunk and going through you know hundreds, thousands of images of the seafloor. And the seafloor, I can tell you, is very boring until it's not. <laughs> and the moment that it was not is when this tube was sticking out of the seafloor and. My first thought was, oh, no, this is just an, some sort of industrial wreckage site where the Cartagena, where we were, is, is a large port. So a lot of things on the bottom, like containers that might fall off ships or industrial objects, um, I thought this was another one. But a few pictures later, I see you know, four, three or four cannon. Um, and although I'm not an archaeologist, I, I know what a cannon looks like. So that was the moment. Uh, in in my bunk there, that I I realized I'm the only person in the world who knows that that we found the shipwreck. So I kind of sat there for a bit and relished the moment. Yeah, I can see you doing <laughs> that. Uh, uh, did you smile inwardly? Did you smile outwardly? I I smiled in every possible direction at that moment, <laughs> and for a few moments after that. Well, then you had to say something. Do you you remember your words? I well, I do remember when. So this this is right before dinner, and I went up to to dinner and met with the uh, our team leader, and he you know looks at me and is like, so you know, did we find it? And you know, I, I tried to be fairly calm, and I guess my words were, yeah, we found it, but you know, it was pretty. <laughs> I say that now, I was probably you know grinning ear to ear, and uh, didn't hide it very well, but. <laughs> well, your personal investment here it comes from your expertise, but you're not going to have any uh, share in this treasure, I don't think, are you? So when Woods Hole first got contacted to, to look for this shipwreck, it was sort of, you know, immediately not really within our mission statement. But then we, we thought about it and we're like, you know, this is a, a piece of history. This is, this is important and we can bring technical expertise to the search. But we really, as far as a, a risk for a reward financially for us, that's not what Woods Hole is all about. Um, yeah, you're not wanna, scavengers, are you? No. Well, I would, um, even scavengers is uh, – salvagers, I guess, would be the way. Salvagers. Would, would there go. we go. That's not, that's not what we are. We're dedicated to advancing knowledge of the ocean and through you know, science, engineering, education – those those sorts of things. Yeah, That's really uh, our, our maybe we should say you're not bottom feeders. <laughs> you might offend somebody else by talking about that, but <laughs> I will agree with you that we are not bottom. Well, we study bottom feeders. How about that? Jeff Cayley, a research engineer with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. I'm Marcus Smith. Our show is a production of BYU Radio. 